There are about 24,000 distinct people groups in the world, and about 6,500 of them have never heard the name of Jesus Christ or anything about the gospel of Jesus Christ. That represents over a billion people in the world. So what would it be like to be placed amongst such a group and it was your opportunity for the first time to present the gospel of Jesus Christ? Where do you begin? Well, the church has been torn about that question for centuries because there are two impulses that naturally come to mind, maybe to yours as well. The first question, maybe the most natural one, would be to say, I'd preach the gospel. I would, if I had my one opportunity, I would get up and preach about what God has done in Jesus Christ, the death of Christ on the cross, his glorious resurrection, and call them to repent and believe the gospel. And there's a huge, uh, massive, I shouldn't say huge, yeah, <laughs> massive influence of the church along those lines where the church has gone out and evangelistic ministries and crusades and even things like the Jesus film that shows the Jesus film are all based more or less on that premise. It's a good impulse. The other impulse, which is maybe less intuitive, is to say, no, nah, I wouldn't do that. I didn't really start from the very beginning and I would slowly unfold the whole story. And it'd be a long time before we ever, ever get to Jesus Christ. There's whole movements that are around that. The, the one story was an example of that, where they have so many crafted stories, and it may be many stories before you ever mention Jesus Christ. Well, the book of Hebrews is actually, and by the way, both the impulses are wonderful, and you may have to discover your own gift to know which one of those impulses is your gift. But uh, God uses both of those gifts, actually, for the church's good and for the world's good. But Hebrews is definitely in the latter category. Hebrews is really, really trying to present Christ by carefully laying out how Christ builds upon, in this case, seven of the great themes of the Old Testament. And so the book of Hebrews is announcing the gospel very carefully and showing how Christ fulfills, trumps, and even supersedes all of the great seven verities and seven building blocks of the Old Testament. Uh, the Christ is greater than the angels, the prophets, Moses, law, high priest, kingship, and sacrifice. And in every case, he is showing how Christ supersedes them all. In this particular chapter, we're now uh, in this series in the book of Hebrews, we are at the last of the seven, where in chapter 10, he dedicates it to showing how Christ is the great uh, fulfillment of the sacrificial system of the Old Covenant. Now, in order to really get your teeth into what he does here, I want you to, because um, verse 1, you know, automatically launches us this amazing text. Uh, we have to prepare a little bit for this, even this first verse, because I want to picture or remind you of three pictures, little word stories. I want you to picture three things in your mind from the Old Testament. One, can you see yourself with Moses at the foot of Mount Sinai? And this is the, the time when they're preparing for God to meet with them, and they must consecrate the mountain. And they're told to build, Moses is told to build this huge earthen altar, and they have these, uh, the 12 pillars they build of the 12 tribes of Israel. And Moses takes 
balls, and he sacrifices these balls. He slits their throat, and he takes their blood. This is, by the way, Exodus 24. And he takes the blood, and he sprinkles blood on the altar, and then he sprinkles it on the people, and he says, amazingly, this is the blood of the covenant poured out for you. Picture number two. We now find ourselves not at the Mount Sinai, but now entering into the Promised Land. We crossed over the Jordan River, and they did an amazing thing. They divide them into two groups, and one group gets on Mount Ebal, and one group gets on Mount Gerizim. Remember this? And what do they do? They, the Mount Ebal people, they're responsible for announcing the 12 curses of God upon them if they break the covenant. And those on Mount Gerizim announce these amazing, it kind of goes through every part of their life. Now everything in their life, it's like a, a survey of the whole of their life, will be blessed by God if they obey him. Mount Gerizim. Third a picture is the picture of, yes, the blowing of the shofar. <laughs> the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, where they actually gather together and they're they also have sacrificed with the day of fasting, the, great, the greatest holy day of the year. To this day, I grew up in a Jewish neighborhood. To this day, even the unbelieving Jews go to synagogue on the Day of Atonement. This is like, you know, Eastern Christmas. People show up, you know. This is that for the Jews. This is the day where everybody shows up. And if you're an unbeliever, you still show up. And this was the solemn assembly. Everybody showed up. And they, the Day of Atonement was there. And they had sacrificed. But the thing that was interesting this day was they would take two goats and they would sacrifice one of them and put the blood on the altar, the same we saw earlier, but also the other, he would lay his hands on the, on, on the goat, confess the sins of the people over the goat, and then the goat would be led away out into the wilderness and let go. It was called the scapegoat. We still use that term today. Three pictures, these three amazing pictures that are there before us. The picture of blood sacrifice, the picture of covenant-keeping, and the picture of substitutionary atonement. Now, when Hebrews 10 opens up, the law is only a shadow of that which is coming, the good things coming, not the true form of the realities themselves. It's really important to hear what he's saying here because the shadow here is not meant to be shadow, like we use the word like shadowy, He's a shadowy person. That's a shadowy idea. This is not that kind of shadow. This is the normal kind of shadow, like your shadow, my shadow. When there's a light shining and the shadow precedes the, uh, you know, precedes you. So here you picture like a shadow that's moving forward, like into a doorway. You know, you're you're seeing the shadow come in, and you see the form of it, and you see blood covenant, you see sacrifice, or our covenant, blood sacrifice, and substitutionary atonement. You see, those are three things. But then he says here, but the shadow is followed by the true form, that is to say the actual image, the, the thing that the shadow is shadowing is a real thing. And so the law is a shadow of that which comes, the, the skia, 
not the good that are coming, not the, the acone. Acone is the word for right, image, right? The thing that comes, the actual thing that corresponds to the shadow is coming. So here are the Jewish people. They, they, they had the whole shadow of the whole thing, these background things, all seven of these things. They know about blood covenant. They know about sacrifice. They know about substitutionary atonement. These are things. And so the shadow comes across the threshold and then the form appears and you should at this point gasp. Everyone please gasp. Yes, gasp, that's perfect. Because what it comes across the threshold is not a thing. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is what he's announced in this text. Jesus Christ is the true form of which the Old Testament merely shadowed as it crossed into the New Covenant. We see now all of this is present in Jesus Christ. Well, then he goes into the next several verses, showing us three very, very clearly uh, inherent problems with the Old Covenant. It wasn't inherently problem in the design. It was designed to have these problems, but it was nevertheless problems about the Old Covenant uh, system. Number one, uh, he, they were not permanent. They had to be repeated over and over again. That's clearly laid out there in verse one. By the same time, repeated endlessly. Number two, they could not make you perfect. Now, by the way, whenever, whenever the word, the, the phrase make perfect appears in the New Testament as Wesleyans sit up. Because this is, a, this is the one of the phrases, I mean, there's things that we have to learn from the traditions, but this is one thing that we can teach the larger church. Because we spend a lot of time on this. We like this phrase. We'll come back to that. It couldn't make anybody perfect. That's two. And three, it was an annual reminder. In other words, you never could quite get over it. See, part of the problem with the atonement system was that it covered sins up. It did not take them away. And therefore, every year, you were re-reminded of all the sins that had been covered up. Now, it's important. If he says here, the blood of bulls and goats is impossible to take away sins. That is his thesis. It's the third time he stated it. Remember back in... In uh, 722, he says that Jesus Christ is the guarantor of a better covenant. So this, the big thesis of this is the new covenant is better than the old covenant. And then 816, he said, it is a superior covenant built on better promises. And now he says, point blank, the blood of bulls and goats, it's impossible for them to take away sins. It was very possible for them to cover up sins. We shouldn't forget that. It was important for how God saved his people that it was preparatory for that which would take away. So there's these three um, kind of design issues that need to be resolved. And then he goes into, surprisingly, this quotation from Psalm 40. Now, Psalm 40 should surprise you. Because all this time we've been in Hebrews, he's been churning through regularly uh, the psalms that are what we call really high-end messianic psalms. Psalm 2, Psalm 110. Psalm 40 is not like that. It's not a messianic psalm. But one of the lessons we learn from the New Testament is, guess how many Messianic Psalms there are? 150! They don't mind this at all. So he actually says, and this should be another gasping moment, therefore when Christ came into the world, he said, yeah, there we go, oh, you guys are great. I was preaching one time in a church in Georgia, and um, I was asked to go down to this revival service and uh, preach. 
as an as a all-African-American community. And I went and preached the revival. And man, it was great. I mean, we were going, you know, and they were, hallelujah, praise the Lord, you know, just like you were doing right now. Gasping at the right moment, everything. And it, I got back, my later said, why don't you preach like that down at our church? You know, a regular church. Why don't you preach that to us? I said, you don't help me out like that. <laughs> you're helping me, you're helping me. So he quotes Psalm 40, puts it in the lips of Jesus. Jesus said, that's great. Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you are not pleased. Here I am, it is written the scroll, I have come to do your will, O God. Now this is the one text in the psalm, one of the many texts, that actually coalesces one of the great themes of the Old Testament, which was that, and this is why he's bringing it out, that the Old Testament already knew there was a flaw. That it was very easy to make the, the sacrifices mechanical and you go through the motions. Do we have that problem too sometimes? Go through motions, Asbury going through mechanical motions. We need to stop and have a day of prayer. Remember, it's not about the motions we do. You're in the pastorate. You know how to prepare sermons, sermons technically. You know how to counsel people. You know, do all these things. And you forget the true form, Jesus Christ. This is a long-standing problem, and, and, and God put it in the prayer book of the church, the people of God, Psalm 40, and it was actually a way of harvesting many verses from the Old Testament, a few of which you'll hear right now. I'm going to have some students share these verses. We'll begin with these five of these verses. To obey is better than to sacrifice, 1 Samuel 15, 22. When I brought your forefathers out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices. I gave them this command, Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Jeremiah 7, 22, 23. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? He has showed you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, 6 through 8. These are just a few of so many examples where they already are identifying themselves this problem. And Psalm 40 puts it into the worship of the, of the people of God. Now when he quotes this, he says, Sacrifice and offering you do not desire, but a body you prepared for me. If you go back and look at the Old Testament, Psalm 40, he doesn't say that right? And we heard it read earlier. It says something like, you'll have, um, but you have opened my ears, you have pierced my ears, something like that is in the Old Testament. Why does it say you a body you prepared for me? Well, if you go back to the Hebrew, the Hebrew says literally, and ear, my ears you have dug for me, is literally what it says. My, my ears you have dug for me. Translated various ways. Um, and oftentimes it's associated with the text about, you know, remember how the slave, when the slave was set free, they had their, ears, their ear pierced. I don't think it's all related to that at all. This is about, when, when this is not the word, but even the word in that, that Exodus text about the piercing of ears, not the same word for pierce here, and it says ears, my ears you have dug for me in Psalm 40. It's about God fashioning the body when God creates the world, he fashions us out of clay, 
And one of the things he decided to do in your design, in my design, was to dig ears in the side of our clay. Why? So you could hear the will of God. Okay, so ear, it's, it's plural ears. Ears you have dug for me. So in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, which is what the New Testament frequently quotes, whenever the New Testament quotes the Old Testament, it's quoting the Greek version of the Old Testament, they rewarded the Old Testament essentially by acknowledging this is about body preparation. God prepared not just our ears, but our whole body to obey him. That's important because when the Septuagint said, a body prepared for me, Hebrews can't resist this because he again has Jesus saying these words that in, just as in the creation of the world, God prepared a body, that is to say us, in the creation that we might someday obey him and hear him, two ears and one mouth, we should listen twice as much as we talk. He also prepares Jesus in the womb of Mary. He prepares him to receive, be brought into the world in the incarnation and to hear God's word. So that's exactly what Jesus does when he comes. A body you prepared for me, and now I come to do your will. Now at this point, uh, he launches this beautiful closing section where he celebrates how Jesus Christ fulfills all of the three limitations that we found in the Old Covenant, which we've already mentioned, and I'll mention these three again. First of all, just remember before, the first problem was that it was endlessly repeated over and over and over again. Now he says, this sacrifice has happened once and for all, and Jesus has taken away our sins, and he now is seated at the right hand of the Father. Praise the Lord. There we go. Now notice that in before, it was about Christ, like priests doing things, offering sacrifices or things like priests do things like offer bulls and goats and blood is sprinkled. All these are things. Priest and sacrifice. Now Christ comes and he is both high priest and sacrifice. United in one person. And priests always, do they, do they sit or do they stand? Priest they stand. Priests always stand before God. That means, from Hebrews' perspective, that means the priest's work is never done. They're always standing. Jesus Christ sits down at the right hand of God the Father. <laughs> Completed action. Hallelujah. Then he says, and this is all the same point, he says, the old could not take away sins. The word there is aphorain. Here he uses Christ, paralain. This is the word for the, the old takeaway is like, hey, here's a problem, here's something on the, on the shelf here, he takes it away. Paralane is about something which surrounds you. Where we get the word perimeter from. It, you are surrounded by sin. That's why they couldn't take it away. We're entrapped by it. Even, he says, the priests were entrapped by it. And so the, the reason that the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sins because it's not about taking away something. They could only cover something. This is about breaking something which encircles you. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood like the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. That's the gospel. Number two. He makes perfect forever. The old sacrifices could not make you perfect. This one, will, he says... 
can now, verse 14, because by one sacrifice he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy, or those who are sanctified. Now he translated it. Now again, that's the whole, the whole thing. The old covenant cannot make you perfect. We think often the new covenant can't make us perfect either. But this is where we have to, this is where the Wesleyan message inserts itself into the church. Praise God for alien righteousness. When we come to Christ and you, are, you ask your for forgiveness, you are justified and your righteousness is alien. That is, it doesn't belong to you. It's Christ's righteousness. But the story that we want to insert is that's not the end of the story. God is making us holy. He's actually fashioning us so that we mimic this just as he prepared a body for Christ who says, I can do thy will. So he prepares our body, gives us ears so we can obey and do God's will. And the Holy Spirit makes it powerfully possible for you to be actually transformed by the gospel. We don't need to live under a constant cloud of guilt. We live because he actually breaks it. And yesterday, there were so many testimonies of sin that's broken. We don't need to ever apologize and create this kind of minimalistic gospel. What is the least one has to do to be a Christian? That is not our message. We want to believe in the whole plate that God not only justifies us, he sanctifies us. That's the power of the gospel. Thirdly, and this is the beautiful point about this that, that comes to our, our conclusion, the Holy Spirit also says, they have Jesus saying things, Jesus is now saying Psalm 40, now here's the Holy Spirit saying uh, Jeremiah. He concludes, beautiful, not simply by saying, by the way, uh, the Old Covenant, you had an annual reminder of sins here, he remembers your sins no more. He quotes Jeremiah 31, that great text, to say even the prophets anticipated the time when a new covenant would be necessary because up to this point, you're annually reminded of your sins because they could only be covered up. But now your sins are taken away and that means they're actually the power is broken of them. They're actually truly forgiven and they are cast into the bottom of the sea. They're as far as the east is from the west. Now, all of us have a little six-inch demon. I don't know if you believe in demons, but they're six inches because they stand between your shoulder and your ear. And they always are shouting into your ear something like, don't you remember that sin that you committed? Don't you remember that sin? Have you ever had that? And you need to say, wait a minute. The Bible says, when I'm in Christ... I will remember their sins no more. Praise the Lord. Some of you need to know that God is a God who forgets nothing and also he also knows how to forget everything. The power of the gospel of God, Jesus Christ to forget your sins because of the power of the gospel is that great. Even an omniscient God has forgotten something. That you sinned last week because it's under the blood of Jesus Christ and you put it under his blood and he takes it away. We, the power of broken sin. So Hebrews has given us this wonderful, wonderful text. This is 18 verses where he introduces the seventh of these themes to again give us the power and the centrality of Jesus Christ. He is the true form that walks through the window. And we're gonna celebrate this in art today. As Joe Castillo in a moment will come to us and give us a picture of that shadowy form 
that will come into the true form, Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen.